You are listening to the Racer to Racer podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a vintage-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting to motorsports today. Check out Race92.com for all your racing merchandise needs. I'm your co-host, Aaron Mack, to other co-host. You may have seen walking out of Barber Lounge 459 with a big old smile on his face. You've probably seen him at a dirt track. He is Scott Bowie. Hello, Aaron. Recently, if you had been attending the Heart Banquet, you would have seen me uh, gathering our awards. Absolutely. Point I have it right here. Oh, right there, right behind you. State of Indiana, nice little plaque. Thank you to the people from Harf. Uh, it was nice to, to uh, Danny Williams Sr. was the one giving out the awards. It was nice to see him again. Uh, Grant King Racers uh, were there, sat and talked with them. It was a good time. Yep, and I do apologize that I was not there. Um, I had a pretty good excuse. I was at 24 Hours of Daytona. So, um, yeah, work. definitely. Um, I mean, I would have been, you know, everyone knows I would have been there if I could have been, obviously. But um, fortunately, Mr. Scott Bowie was there to um, accept both of the awards. So yeah, I have a wonderful picture of you holding up both of them that I will cherish for the rest of my life. It was, uh, no, it was a good time. I got to see some friends I hadn't seen in years. And um, yeah, it was it was nice to see some people. So. I think your acceptance um, speech went something along the lines of um, you never would have thought you would have got an award in um, media and racing. Yeah, I, I did. That was one of the last things I said. I said, if all the things I've done in racing, I didn't think I'd get a media award. <laughs> but it was very appreciated. So thank you to everyone. And uh, thank you to you for all the hard work you do. And uh, good times. Absolutely. So, yeah, like I said, I was at the 24 Hours of Daytona, stayed for the entire race, and then afterwards I went to Disney World for a couple of days with my girlfriend, which was a good time as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, 24 Hours of Daytona, obviously, um, Elio and Simon Pazino, Tom Bloomquist, and um, I'm missing someone. Yeah, I forget who, who their other driver was. Yeah, I just drew a blank. I apologize, but it it was a good race. Um, obviously, got to watch start. Stayed for a while in the evening, and then um, obviously came back for the finish and in the morning. So, um, pretty good race. Um, obviously, those Michael Shank guys are are hard to beat. Yeah, no, it, it they. Uh, I, I didn't get to watch a lot of it. I did get to watch some. Uh, they were tough, very tough. They were fast, um, and they they had their game together. I mean, it, you know, the racing was close, but they had their game together, and, and uh, they won. So, I mean, hats off to them. Simon being a former guest of the show, always good to see that. Um, you got to see some other former guests of the show and friends of the show. It was like a racer to racer reunion down there. Yeah, you know, it really was, and before – I was saying earlier, I forgot who the other driver was. It was Colin Braun. Colin Brown. There you go. Braun. Um, so I don't know how to say his last name. So I apologize. I think it's Braun. But um, Colin Braun, Tom Bloomquist, Elio Castroneves, and Simon Pagano. So good good to see those guys. Um, all great guys. And yeah, obviously, um, couple other former guests of the show. Um, I know 
Hinchcliffe was walking around. Um, who 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 else was there? The oh yeah, Jared Andretti. Yeah, Jared Andretti. Absolutely. Chavez. Gabby Chavez. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Will Power uh, had couldn't be there. Um, but yeah, and then you got to see uh, Jagger Jones. I was I was about to say. I mean, I I was the first person he actually saw walking in. Yeah, I can't forget uh, about Jagger Jones. I almost forgot about Jagger Jones. Yes, host of the show. He deserves as much as the award as uh, anybody does in a lot of ways. He's uh, he did, he's done a lot of great fill-in work for us, and um, and then you got to see David Land, David the Man Land. Uh, so it's good. Yep, and they made a really big announcement there. Um, Jensen Button, Jimmy Johnson. And Mike Rockefeller will be driving the Garage 56 entry and the next generate next gen NASCAR um, at 24 Hours of Le Mans this year. So um, I think that surprised a lot of people. Maybe not the Jimmy Johnson part, but obviously the Jensen Button part kind of seemed to be out of left field. Um, so <laughs> he was there, and I saw he was walking around most of the week and just kind of taking it in. Um, and actually, they, and I think the reason why they stuck around was because on I think Monday and Tuesday or Tuesday Wednesday they did it test of the car and did at least 12 hour stint to see how yeah. it would stand up so um yeah it's a yeah, cool deal i don't know if i really understand the, the whole purpose behind it because they're not really they're going to be in their own class so but i don't know it's cool yeah it, it's a it's a definitely a different concept um yeah it's funny to see them with the uh, headlights in it and taillights in it and um I tell you, a strange sight though is seeing, uh, speaking of Jimmy Johnson, the 43 car out in California, and you see a photo of the hauler, and it doesn't say Petty on it anymore, and just says Legacy Racing and Motorsports, whatever it's called now, and it cars black. And man, that's that's a little bit of a shock for somebody like myself who, oh yeah, is always a massive uh, Richard Petty fan. Uh, of course, you know the day. Day was going always going to come, but boy, you hate to see it, right? Absolutely, it is kind of a shock. I mean, almost, you know, you probably do some comparisons. I was going to say AJ Foy number fourteen, but I mean, the only thing kind of consistent with number fourteen is that AJ owns it, right? So he's the colors kind of all over the place on the car. So, right. um, Other than that, there was a NASCAR race of the the I guess it's called exhibition race of the Coliseum. Martin Truex Jr. won that. Um, I did not, I was not able to catch that, but, um, I saw parts I, of it. Yeah. I mean, it was typical short track racing, a lot of beat and banging. Um, you know, the crowd was terrible early, but typical LA Southern California crowd, maybe it's all of California. They had looked like they had a really strong crowd by the time mm-hmm. the main event came. So, uh, man, you just, uh, that's just how it's going to be out there. You know, football games, you'd, uh, football basketball games they always show up late and leave early but uh you know it, that's cool though it's good to see them getting a crowd um i don't i haven't seen a lot on the just the opinions of the race from this year so that's gonna be interesting to see uh, um, going forward uh, only other major news story I think we got to mention is Ford coming back to Formula One with Red Bull yeah. in a couple of years I think 2025 or 2026 yeah, I think it's probably 26, I believe. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's uh, cool to see them come back. It'll be interesting to see kind of where Red Bull ends up kind of in the mix that first year. Um, I would think that, you know, the first year may be probably a little more challenging, but I guess you never know. Ford obviously is very well developed. They definitely have the ducks aligned, um, but it's still going to be a new experience for them. Even though they've been in Formula One in the past, obviously things have changed a little bit since then. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's not a shock shocker. I mean, this is been around for a little bit but you know to officially announce it and uh boy as good as it is for red bull and f1 as an indycar fan it hurts a little bit to see and i know that they're mad at indycar and they'll probably never ever come back to indycar i i get all that it just uh it just you just hate to see it and speaking of indycar uh all the teams in the leaders leader circle, whatever they call that, for the top 22 teams. Took a haircut of about $150,000 to basically pay into what would essentially be a franchise advertising fee uh, for the series because they have, you know, new direction and marketing. And uh, I hope it works because these teams need that money. And, um, but, I mean, you have to... (laughs) You know, as they say, you have to trust the process. So, uh, I it, it's anything that pulls money away from the teams is really bothersome to me. But maybe I'm not seeing the picture correctly. Um, but uh, you know, some of those teams took a. You know, if you got a four car team, you're looking at six hundred thousand dollars. You know, so that I mean that's. Yeah, like I said, I mean, that's a big nut. May not affect the big teams, but some of those smaller teams, you know, that may be one or two people's job. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's, uh, that, that's rough. And I, I just hope it pays off because, uh, I mean, bottom line is I love IndyCar, uh, and they've got some great personalities. They, they've had some great races. Um, but the winds of change is, have been going against them lately instead of with them. Uh, for a while, I really felt like they had all the wind underneath them. And now I, I'm starting to think that the, what I was thinking was absolutely wrong. And I, and I hope I'm not because, uh, man, it's just, it, you, you know, you, you can't say, well, you know, I know the thing is, well, F1's F1 and NASCAR's NASCAR and IndyCar's IndyCar. Well, but you see, I mean, at least NASCAR's stagnant, which is good. Uh, I mean, not great, but it's it's still good. F1's growing, which is great. And it's really hard to tell where IndyCar is. Uh, one week, you feel like it's growing. Next week, you feel like it's stagnant. And then the following week, you feel like it's contracting. And, Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know. I hate saying that, but that's just kind of how it is. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, but I mean, really, other than that, um, wanted just first off, well, first off, um, we're releasing um, Johnny O'Connell this week. So um, it, you know, Johnny was a great talk. We did this a few weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I think everyone will really- enjoy it. Obviously, Johnny is very well accomplished race car driver, the most successful GM factory driver um, right. of all time. So in the United States. So, um, you know, obviously drove, <laughs> drove in, drove in the IRL, drove the Indy 500. Um, 
which, you know, I don't think he, and he'll be the first to tell you that he did not have the best equipment for the Indy 500. Um, but, you know, he's definitely proud to say that, you know, he drove in the Indy 500. And, um, yeah, I think everyone will enjoy that talk. Love Johnny. He's a great guy, funny guy, um, and just has a lot of good things to say for sure. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, one of the great things about this show is, is getting to talk to a lot of people. I, I knew their names, didn't know a lot about definitely didn't know the personalities Mm -hmm. and you're really seeing, you can really, if you go back through these shows, you can really get a feeling uh, kind of why these, some of these guys really made it, you know, because they're just the way they carry themselves and that sort of thing. So yeah, it was a great talk. Really enjoyed it. And especially when people respond and say, they'll do a podcast, you can tell a lot about a person as well. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but, but but no um but, so i want to thank everyone for um you know watching the episodes and um please like and subscribe if you haven't already um i think we are planning on doing another mcgillivray's live show i believe february 28th but we'll keep everyone posted on that um it may have a couple other things going on um also want to thank fast times indoor karting for being a great partner um you know, obviously we, we do our pro versus shows video series. We have one that it's all done. I'm just waiting for the right time to release it. So hopefully here in a couple of weeks, I'll probably release that. Um, and actually speaking of fast times, I just want to say thank you to good friend, Mr. Jeff Dodds, um, who will actually be in the next video that I released from fast times. He invited me out this past weekend um, for his first annual partner invitational um, and since we invited him to race, he thought it was fitting to invite uh, me to race as well. So um, I got to race against him and Jimmy Kide and um, ha- had a lot of fun. I actually have my fastest lap ever there. Um, little upset about that because it's, it was unofficial. It wasn't during our video, so I can't I can't update the board yet. So um, but I think I, I think I got it in me for another one. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good. That was a good group of guys, too. Uh, Jeff Dodge, who uh, people may or may not remember, he ran in Indy Lights. Uh, yeah. he, he got a deal uh, from running sprint cars in Knoxville. Um, and that's when he first came back here. And that's when I first met him uh, when I still had the shop. Um, like Jeff, uh, you know, obviously I've known him for a long time uh, at this point. You know, Jimmy's always great. Mike, uh, Mike Domas did, too. Joe Devon, Mike Devon's son, uh, was there running. Uh, Joe Devon being the proprietor of DRC chassis, um, builders of Silver Crown cars, Sprint cars, Midgets. Uh, he was there with you guys. Um, so that's really cool. The diverse group of guys. And uh, man, yeah, three races. We, we all have three races cool basically in a row. We got like one race in between as a break, but. I mean, that was, that's a lot. I mean, one race usually is enough. So um, it's pretty, right. pretty physically demanding. So it was, it was cool though. I enjoyed it. Um, I think I got a little bit more confidence boost in me now. So um, maybe get a little bit of an advantage for our next one, but. Hey, got to, yeah. got to get what you can take, right? Take what you can get. That's right. So, um, but other than that, um, yeah. Thanks everyone for watching and listening. And if, if you don't notice, Scott Bowie is still very comfortable. Thanks to the good guys. That, Good guys, heating, cooling. Yep, the good folks are good guys. I don't have any concerns about my furnace, and it's been running pretty hard. It was cold here for a few days. Um, 
And uh, now things were great. Anybody, if they needed to tune up, anything of that nature in your Indianapolis area, please uh, reach out to the good guys and they will definitely set up an appointment and, and, uh, and get you taken care of. And uh, can I also give a shout out to uh, a friend of the show? Uh, we mentioned him already once, David Land. He started a new podcast. Uh, I have not had a chance to listen or watch it yet. I will do it, but uh, good for that guy. No, I'm just joking around. Uh, no, good, good for uh, something. You know, it's uh, especially as somebody who makes a living in the in the motorsports. Uh, I think you got to keep trying to stay diverse, and um, and that's a good deal for him. So, good luck to him. And uh, other than that, that's about all I got. Absolutely. Well, hope everyone enjoys and um, yeah, hope everyone has a great week. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Our guest today is a most successful GM factory driver in the United States. He's a three-time ALMS GT1 champion, a four-time 24 hours of Le Mans class winner, the 2001 24 hours of Daytona overall winner, and drove in the 1996 Indy 500. We are joined by Johnny O'Connell. Now, Johnny, that's a very impressive resume. I mean, we've interviewed um, some real legends of the sport, and you're definitely up there. And that resume, I think, it would be hard for just about anyone to beat. So it's very <laughs> impressive. Uh, well, thank you. I was pretty fortunate in my career. You know, uh, I had I started out. I wanted to be uh, an open wheel guy to try to get over to Europe and race Formula One. And actually, earlier in my career, I had a, a fair amount of help from uh, Bobby Ray Hall and Jackie Stewart. And uh, unfortunately, at that time, American companies weren't wanting to spend money on an American in Europe, uh, like if, whether it was Budweiser or back then you had tobacco sponsorship. Uh, they wanted if you were racing, we were trying to race uh, British Formula Three and they wanted to sp spend their money on British guys, which kind of stunk. And uh but, you know, we got all the way up to Indy Lights before I realized, uh, and it's really kind of funny because I saw what I was making racing Indy Lights and I was driving for Chip Ganassi. <clears throat> and I know what I made that year and I know what Tommy Kendall made racing <laughs> Chevrolet. And Tommy's a buddy of mine and I'm like, I know he was making a lot more money racing sports cars and so uh so that's when i really started taking a good look at sports cars and got very fortunate to hook up with nissan in the early 90s so where did kind of your interest in racing start for you so you first started racing go-karts right yeah very young actually you know my my very first you know driving experience was our i was probably five six years old and the the family were on vacation in cape cod and they had one of those goofy little, you know, rental go-kart places. And I was too tiny, but they let me sit on my dad's lap. This was before lawyers ruined the world. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I was hooked. I mean, I was, I was just hooked. And I pretty much made, you know, the, the decision at that point in my life. I was lucky. I had a really good, you know, second grade teacher and uh pretty impressionable young man i guess but she was the one that taught us about being an american living in the united states and you can be whatever you want if you want to be president you can be president if you want to be a doctor lawyer you know whatever it is that you you aspire to you can do and, that, and by the second grade i already knew you know i wanted to race uh i started racing carts in about the seventh or eighth grade and actually chose my college uh because there's good go-karting nearby 
and uh, and just one thing led to another. I was again, I've been very, very for- fortunate. It, you know, most most kids that make it in racing come from a super wealthy family. We were just your average, you know. I mean, every now and then, my dad would buy me a set of tires for my go karts and stuff like that. But uh, and spent a lot of years being super poor. It's funny. I've got a, you know, I've got two kids now, and when I was twenty eight years old, I was living in a garage. And, uh, you know, because I, I told myself I'll give myself till, till I'm 30 and luckily, you know, things turned out, uh, turned out okay, but, uh, it definitely wasn't easy. So, so you took in, I mean, you decided at that young age, you said, man, this is it. This is what I'm gonna do for life. And then pretty much everything you did after that was just focused and funneled into that. 100%. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was a pretty decent uh, soccer player. That's actually what got me into the college. And uh, and when you were a freshman, and it was Denison University, that's how I got to know Bobby Rahal. We both went to the same school. and But there was a great go-kart track about two hours away. Well, as a freshman, I couldn't have my van uh, on, on campus. So I had a van that I kept my cart in. and uh, But my sophomore year, you could have a car. And so, uh, so I quit soccer, totally focused on, on, uh, the racing. And then, uh, in, I can actually remember the dates, August 9th through 11th, 1983. Good Lord almighty is that aging myself. <laughs> uh, that's when I went through the, <coughs> excuse me, the Jim, uh, Russell British school of motor racing out of Riverside, California. And, uh, unbelievable going, getting to drive a formula Ford for the first time. And, and they, I, I, it was total lucky because my, my school made you do internships. And so I was my senior year and I, I asked, Hey, can I do an internship out there? Spend January out there, you know, I'll, you know, do the, my best as a mechanic or answer phones. And they're like, yeah, sure. Well, while I was out there, I found out they had a competition called the graduate runoff. So if you've been through the school, but not raced with them, uh, and it was $720 and I didn't have the money. I borrowed it from my dad and, uh, and they, but they was filled. They, it was 56 spots and 56 guys had already signed up for it. And they were like, if somebody doesn't show up, you're in. Somebody didn't show up. I was in long story short, I won the thing and then won, won a year of racing for free. So, wow. uh, so uh, yeah, lucky a lot. So, uh, but, uh, but, you know, and it's funny because I look back, back then, you know, I've had like six or seven teammates that are ex formula one drivers and you ask them, when did you have the most fun? And you would think, Oh God, it's when I was racing for McLaren or whatever team they, they might've driven for. None of them say that, you know, they always say I had the most fun in go-karts or the formula Ford stuff. And, uh, so, you know, that, that time in my life, even though I was really wicked poor was some of the most fun racing and memories that, that, uh, that I've had. Is that, is that because, uh, I mean, at that point you're still doing it for the love of it, right? I mean, you, you don't, I mean, you want to make a career out of it, but it's still out in the future and you're just trying to get there. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was, there were never any distractions from what I wanted to do. Uh, There were a lot of, there were a lot of moments of anger and frustration when the guys that I felt were lesser drivers, but they had rich dads that could do it. You know, they move up the ladder and you're like, "Ah, this really stinks. 
but uh but i think it, it also just you know uh you know it drove me but there were there were times when when you're younger and working your way through the sport and i, I am not the only one a lot of guys um you know run across this it's funny when i drove for chip ganassi he he chip was you know definitely a unique individual but he had great saying <laughs> and uh, especially back then he's he's a much cooler guy then now than he was then but uh but the he had the saying most grapes don't get picked most grapes die on the vine when it comes mm. to race as in most most talent never gets past formula ford they can't afford it and and that's true now it's and it was true back then and uh you know it's uh it is uh you know, it's it's a shame, but the financial aspect of the sport is uh, is a big part of it. You know, I got lucky. I met a guy that was willing to finance me for a little bit, enough to make a name and get the ball rolling uh, to where where I started getting hired. For you, what was really the hardest thing adapting from open wheel racing to sports car racing? What was the hardest thing to kind of get used to with the transition? A great question. Uh, the Formula cars, if if you put an input, you get an immediate reaction, right? You move the steering wheel just a little bit and the car instantly responds. With sports cars, there's a, a slight delay because of the mass. Now, that's that was the case in the, you know, the first real sports car that I drove was that Nissan, the 300ZX. But and there was mass there and you had, you know, the Yokohama tires had a huge sidewall, uh, sidewall. So you'd, you'd input your steering, but there'd be a delay before the car really reacted and then it would roll and then it would set. When I was doing all the, the testing for, uh, for uh, NPTI in the Group C and GTP stuff, there, a, a prototype is so close to an IndyCar, you know, that an input in the steering wheel or the brakes or the throttle gave you an immediate reaction. So, uh, so th those types of cars, you're probably a little bit more connected. Whereas with the sports cars, the sedans, if you're not, if you don't, if you have a car that doesn't have aero, it, uh, there's a little bit of delay and you gotta, you gotta learn how your, your timing a little bit. Right. And I mean, so and another thing with sports car racing, obviously is the races are much longer. Um, and then endurance races, obviously, like, you know, 24-hour races. Like, how did you um, really approach those races any different than any other race? Back back in the day, <laughs> God, I hate that I can say back in the day. But, like, say, say you were running at Sebring and you could do a lap, you know, a quick lap would be a 203, okay? And uh, you wouldn't race it at 203. You'd race it at 207. You know, you take some out, you lengthen your braking zones, slow the shifts down a little bit. You know, you got to look after the gearbox, things like that. But by the time you got to about 2001, 2002, the cars were pretty much bulletproof. You know, they're really hard to break them. And uh, so every, so you stopped taking, you know, lap time out. So like at Le Mans, if a good lap was, say, a 3.56, the, the old days, you run at a four-minute. You know, but now, you know, if a good lap is 356, well, you're going to do 356 every lap. And the neat thing about the about endurance racing now, you know, I had some pretty great teammates. I had Ian Magnuson, Antonio Garcia, you know, ex-Indy car guys, you know, uh, Ron Fellows. I got, I got to race with some really good guys. Well, if I go down in the garage and I see Ian's doing 355s, 
I know I got to do 355s. So there's a lot of internal pressure within you and the team to keep pushing. And uh, I, li- I like that aspect. Even though it's 24 hours, the fact that you're attacking it nonstop is, uh, is pretty cool. You know, you mentioned you, in the old days you would, you know, you'd stretch the lap a little bit. And today there's no gap. I mean, you, you got to be in your time. Um, from a physical and mental standpoint, as that as that picks up, and I'm not necessarily saying for you, I'm just saying for all drivers, uh, does that shorten your stints or, I mean, since you're working that much harder and you're mentally, you're always mentally there, but, that, you know, I, I think is the difference between stretching the lap a little bit and trying to be right in the number every lap. It is both. They're, they're different skill sets. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you told me to do a 407, you figure out within two laps how to do a 407. Where do you break? How all that stuff. So you're driving with the same intensity, but just with, you know, it, when you're pushing real hard, the, the margin of error is smaller. As athletically, the cars now are so much easier to drive, so much easier to drive than back in like 2001, 2002. I mean, where where cars are now with ABS, and they ought to get rid of ABS. ABS, in my mind, is wrecked. You know, it's taken the the skill aspect out of drivers. I mean, any knucklehead can you know go to the 200 marker and then hit the pedal as hard as they can. There's no really skill set in that. Um, but that but because now the cars are air conditioned, you've got unbelievable ABS traction control that you can literally get into the corner, floor it, you know, and let the computer drive you out of the corner. I mean, they're the 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 guys that got 1600s on their SATs have have and they're they're so valuable to the sport, but it's so much easier to drive a car now. And again, the you know, back in the day, we used to uh, run cool uh, cool shirts. You know, mm-hmm. run a cool, and uh, and that helped. And you could do a double on a hot day, but you get out and you'd still be hot. Well, once they introduced air conditioning, it, it, it a double now becomes you know three or four stints. You know, okay. be, the reason that works is that you're cooling your your body from the inside. If you're breathing air that's seventy degrees, you can be in a 130, 140 degree environment, and you're fine. Mm, right. That's De- interesting. Definitely makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah. 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 Um, so 1994 was your first year at Lama, um, and yeah. you won your first year. So talk a little bit about that experience, kind of what it was like to go to Lama. Uh, you know, again, it was, and that's one that I'd never, you know, you, you, you're like, yeah, it'd be cool to be there one day, but you never think it's going to happen. And then it happens. And uh, I just, <clears throat> man. Like the first, then the track's a little bit different now. Um, uh, but um, the first time you come through Tetra Rouge and you look down and you see that famous, you see Malsan, and you're going through the gearbox and you're just like, where's the corner? Where I mean, because you just you're hauling, and uh, it uh, I mean, it just it's such a magical lap. And the the aura to the place, uh, you know, I was lucky I got to do an Indy 500. To me, Indy doesn't even come close to the the intensity of Le Mans. I mean, Le Mans is a worldwide event. You got you got all the manufacturers there. Uh, you know, uh, it's 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 pretty crazy. And uh, and I got like one of my best memories. We were lucky. We we wound up we won the thing, but we went there 
with a an IMSA setup, you know, a U.S. setup, which was is generally a high downforce setup. We did not, we didn't take wing out or you know do anything to to take arrow out of the car. So we would not have the crazy top end. You know, we were probably 190, maybe maybe 195 against the Group C cars who are doing like 230. But one of my favorite memories is going into the first chicane and a, and a uh, Group C car passes me and then pulls right in front of me. And that's at about the 300 board. And I know, because I've been watching, those guys are breaking it about the 250. Well, we didn't, we had so much arrow, we could break it like the 100. So mm. in the breaking for the first chicane, he passes me and then I go and break at the 100 and pass him and go through the first chicane. And actually in the first chicane, it's Hans Stuck and Hans and I had had some good races in the rain and stuff. And I'm sure I didn't, I'm sure he had no idea it was me, but he, as he goes by me, he flips me off. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that, that's, I mean, to me, that was the coolest thing in the world getting flipped off by Hans Stuck. So, uh, so yeah, no, that was, that was pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, I got lucky. I, at Le Mans, I got to, I got to race it 15 times, podium nine and win it four. And when you're, when, and you know, motor racing fans know what it's like there, you go on the, the stage at the end and there's literally a hundred thousand people on the straightaway and they're playing, you know, the, our national anthem and racing the flag. That's, uh, that's rocking chair equity right there. I like it. But, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you're 28 in a garage, um, and you, you had put a self-imposed cutoff at 30. Um, yeah. and what did, so at 30, what type of, where did you have to be in your mind at 30 that say, okay, we're not doing this anymore. Like where, you know what I'm saying? Like, where would you have, like, what part of the ladder would you have had to been on? Well, I, making a living, making a living and okay. no, hey, there's a future here, you know, or that, you know, it, had I felt, and this, this is, doesn't sound, this, maybe it sounds arrogant or whatever, but if I had felt I'd run against a guy that was stronger than me, I might've had second thoughts, but I never raced a guy, you know, it, until that point in my life that I was like, that guy's just better, you know? And, uh, so it, uh, so I, you know, I mean, luckily I didn't have to make that decision, you All know, right. but, but because it was like when I was 28, I, you know, I, at that time, that was when I got the Indy lights deal and then the Nissan stuff happened. And then, you know, uh, there, there were, you know, again, there were difficult years in there, you know, when sports car, you know, kind of faded in the mid nineties, uh, when IMSA was really failing, uh, and then they became professional sports car, whatever it was for a while. Uh, and then, you know, thank God, you know, Don Panos entered the sport because in my mind worldwide, he is really the, the person most responsible for the sports car racing we enjoy today. Well, who, um, so if we're going to use old sports analogies here, um, so if you're if you're Magic Johnson, right? Who's your Larry Bird? Who is the guy that you were always thinking about, or was there a guy? No, no, there were always guys. There, there were well, always your teammate. You know, you got to be your teammate. Yep. I stupid, and that's very Formula One. But you got to be your teammate. Um, but guys, you know, I always I, I thought Tommy Kendall was a great racing driver. We didn't, we and I didn't get to race as often as as I would like. Um, Jeff Brabham was really cool. You know, Ari Leindyke, uh was was fun to work with. 
Um, but in the sports car stuff, the, you know, and again, the, when, when I was racing Ford Corvette and we were against the pro drive guys, they were, they were pretty good. Thomas Anga was a great race car driver. Um, you know, the Ferrari would every now and then show up with guys that were really good. Uh, always had, you know, we had great, some great battles with, uh, with Porsche, with, uh, York Bergmeister and Patrick Long. And, uh, so yeah, there were, you know, it's funny because what I would always do is, you know, on my screensaver rather than, you know, a picture of my girlfriend or my dog or something, I would have the names of the guys that, that I'm racing against Alvaro Perrin, you know, uh, was, was driver, Olivier Beretta, you know? And so, uh, so you would have, you know, so like every time you look at your phone, I'd be like, all right, you know those guys might be going to the gym today. So I got to go to the gym today and just kind of live that. I don't think there's anything wrong with having that personal challenge against another guy, but I got to race against some great guys, you know, and make friends with great guys. McNish was a great guy. Uh, one of my favorite guys was Mika Stalo, really cool guy. JJ mm. uh, Leto, you know, I got to, 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 to be out there and hang out with some pretty cool guys. Well, I think that that's uh, the difference between good and great, right? Like the good guys go to the gym, the great guys try to get there a half hour earlier before everybody else or an hour earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right thing, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but no, that's true. You gotta, you know, the the success in anything I think is the result of wanting it more than the next guy and being willing to dedicate, make the sacrifices. That's <laughs> one. So you talk a little bit about you know switching from overall racing to sports car racing. So what made you kind of come up with this decision to go IndyCar racing, kind of going back to kind of where you came from in 1996 after you have already been in sports car racing for a few years? Yeah, that was uh, that was just a trying to take advantage of the situation with with what was going on with the IRL. You know, there was no way to get the budget to do cart uh, back then. Uh, it was pretty, it was, you know, if, if you had a ton of money, you, you could get an opportunity. And, and it's funny because in 93, Nissan had been considering going into car racing, uh, sadly. And I was, it was going to be myself and Jeff, Jeff Rabham. Sadly, that, that didn't happen. But, uh, but so the IRL formed Nissan pulled out, of mm. sports car racing. And my Nissan team was like, let's try to do IRL. And so, uh, so it was all the guys from the sports car team <clears throat> trying to learn over racing real quick. And uh, what do we do? I think we got like 10th at Disney, which was the first race. Then we got third at Phoenix. And so we went into the, that first year to, it was a three race thing and the 8500 was going to be their Super Bowl. And all we had to do was get a decent result. We could have won that first championship. And, but I got to tell you, that was the most miserable month I've ever had because we didn't have any month. Uh, we didn't run at all the first week uh, before I qualified at a total of, I think it was 140 laps around there, which is not a lot of laps. You know, most guys do 140 laps a day, you right. know, that for all week. So we were, we, we qualified 29th. Uh, and it was funny because they had been lecturing everybody <clears throat> You know, we 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 got to have a good start. We got to be safe today. No wrecks, no wrecks. The world is watching because you'll remember the guys at at cart were like, yeah, those guys are all wankers and losers and yada yada yada. So it needed to be a good show. 
And and I woke up thinking, all right, there's 33 guys here and probably 25 are going to be really super safe. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to attack right from the start because I think guys would give up positions. And, uh, and that's really what happened. We got up, I think we got as high as like 10th or 11th before our first fuel stop. And then we lost a fuel pump. And so, so yeah, we, we started 29th and finished 29th, but it was one of those races where I was, you know, I, that was the year Lion Dyke was wicked fast. We weren't going to run with them, but by staying out of trouble and running, you'd, you, you'd be, do you know top seven, top ten, and um, who knows what would would happen? But uh, but uh, yeah, we did that, and then you know again, my this is to, it's well, it's not terrible to say it's the truth. The first time I sat in an IndyCar, now this is this is what I dreamed of, you know, in IndyCar Formula One, it was at the uh, racetrack at Disney World. And the first thing I thought as I'm going through the gearbox is, I can't believe I don't get to drive this on a road course. And right. right, sure. Funny thing about indie cars or, or <clears throat> cars in general, ovals, when the car is right, the most fun, badass thing in the world. Okay. Really. I mean, it's, it's really cool. Um, I had a, this goes back to my Atlantic days and my Super V days and Indy Lights day. I might have had a good oval car 5% of the time, you know, <laughs> and when you have a good car, you're, you're literally waiting to be taken to the hospital. And so, uh, so, you know, looking at things and, and all that kind of stuff and recognizing, you know, I can, I can, I can have a good career in sports cars and not be, you know, having to call everybody I know. The worst part about being a race car driver is, hey, you know, and I'm going to try to do Indy cars next year. Can you think maybe you could put five, ten grand in? You know, begging for money is really difficult. Some guys are good at it, but but I wasn't one. Right. Yeah, so, and that part of the sport just never seems to change. It just seems to the, the that that part of the sport just seems to stay the course. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's difficult. You know, it, it is, you know, um, it's the hardest thing, you know, and if you don't, you know, uh, come from a wealthy family, it's just, it's really, really difficult. It's really difficult, you know, it, um, but that's, it's that, that's how it's been. So, uh, you know, it is it, like, like, and as he said, most talent dies on the mind. Yeah. Now, obviously we've talked to a lot of, drivers who've driven the Indy 500 and we it, it's kind of 50 50 on kind of the answer to this question but I always ask like do you approach a road I mean the Indianapolis Motor Speedway more like a road course or an oval because it seems like a lot of guys say road course and that's why it seems like a lot of people with more of a road course background do so well there um because you know every turn is different like did you kind of view it more like a road course or approach it like a road course or an oval I, I approached it. Uh, I'm so the wrong guy to ask because I sucked at Indy. <laughs> but but it, you know I, I know I approached it as an oval, and uh, but didn't you know setup wise and stuff was always was difficult. We we didn't have anybody that knew anything. You know it's funny because I got to drive it again in '97, and uh, I had gone there just to shake hands kiss babies and and hope i got a ride well scott sharp who was running for foyt in the conseco show uh car 
uh, wrecked twice and they, and they dinged his skull. So they're like, Hey, do you want to drive? I'm like, yeah, well in 32 laps, I think we got to where we were third quick and, uh, and, and the racetrack all of a sudden, rather than being narrow was wide. The car was easy. And then, uh, going into turn one on the 33rd lap an oil fitting broke and it was mm. eight months to walk again. And so, uh, so I think that if the car's right, it's fun, it's easy. And, uh, but I, I just, you know, I, I, I approached it as more of an oval than, than a road course. You know, most road courses, you're not trimmed out. I mean, if there's anything, you know, it'd be more similar to entering the Porsche curves at Le Mans, you know, where you're run, where you're really wicked fast, but not a whole lot of aero. Right. So, um, you know, you you mentioned this a little bit before, but obviously 24 Hours of Le Mans, one of the biggest races in the world. Indy 500, one of the biggest races of the world. How do you think, like, they really compare as far as, like, the pageantry, fanfare, kind of everything that leads up to the event? Because both have really big, you know, just the pageantry involved with both events. It's just world-class. Um, and Indy 500 is the largest day single sporting event in the world. So kind of what's your input on that? It, but it's gotta be, it's gotta be so close because I mean, Lamont get probably gets 300,000 people there when you all the people that are camping on the infield. I mean, they're, they, they gotta be close. I know that Indy, I don't know whether they ever count anybody, but, uh, but it, it is, um, the, the parade at Indy is nice. The parade at Lamont is insane. Um, the, I mean, just some of the stuff that they do at Le Mans, when you just go through scrutineering, scrutineering is, you know, you take your race car, it's in the center of Le Mans, right by the cathedral, and you'll get 30, you know, 20, 20, 30,000 people showing up for that, just to watch the car get measured and go across the scales. And, you know, you as drivers, you put on your driver's suit, you sign autographs and all that kind of stuff. But the parade at, at, uh, at Le Mans it's like 10, 15 feet deep and you're, you're, you know, you and your teammates are going through this. And I mean, it's the, the, the crowd is, is literally five feet away from you on each side. I mean, it's just packed, but it's fun because you'll, you know, 75% of the people there have been drinking all day and took or Danish people, you know, and, and, British people and they're all drinking and partying. It's, 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 uh, it's a pretty memorable experience. And then, uh, but, and then the pageantry before the start of the race, uh, you know, at, at Le Mans is pretty, is, is pretty incredible with them playing all the different national anthems as the morning goes on. It is, uh, and that I just, I felt the, I felt the energy at Le Mans a lot more than I did at Indy. I know, I think if, had I been able to do Indy three, four or five times, uh, my my feelings towards that place would be different. Uh, it's funny because after I wrecked there in 97, I never went back. And uh, and I remember one time, you know, I'm friends with Lynn St. James and Lynn's like, why don't, you know, you get passes there for life if you race there. You know, I mean, the speedway bends over backwards to make anybody that raced there feel great and loved and welcomed. And she's like, why don't you ever go back? And I was like, it's one of the worst experiences in my life. That place almost killed me. And uh, and then I went back in uh, in ninety in uh, nineteen, I think it was two thousand nineteen. I got to drive one of the pace cars. Chevy wanted me to drive one of the pace cars on the pace car laps, and I stood there on the entry into turn one, and was like, oh, "Man, I wish I had gotten a fair shot at this." 
I think that, I think that would have been pretty cool, but, uh, but it didn't. And so you, you can't have any regrets. Yeah. That, that was a weird time for the sport too. That, that whole IRL time and yeah, it's yeah. just such a strange period of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, uh, it, well, you know, thank God IndyCar's back. I think IndyCar racing now is great. Uh, yeah. I, there's amazing parity between the teams now. I mean, back in the day, you, it was it was going to be either Penske or Carl Haas, you know. And uh, and now, you know, you got you know, you'll have Andretti win, you'll have Ganassi win, you'll have Penske win, you'll you, you'll have Dale Coyne win. You know, I think they that it, and that that aspect of of IndyCar racing has has made it pretty exciting again. Where do you see the sport of sports car racing? Um, I mean. The, are you happy with the direction or not happy with the direction or i i think there's some cool stuff going on uh i i think the driver rating system is foolish uh and everyone I think, says that yeah and well i'm a bronze now finally so i'll actually i should be racing <laughs> But uh, but the not only is the driver rating stupid, but the BOP is stupid. And, uh, you know, balancing the performance of all the cars. You know, we got – you go back to when I raced Nissan, we were getting every bit the crowds at Sebring, Daytona, all the races that they get now. The, the crowds aren't any bigger or better. And uh, it is – two quick stories here. So – in 2000, it was Corvette's first time running Le Mans. They went, you know, they got smoked by the Vipers. Month or two after the race, you know, GM people fly over to France and they're like, listen, you know, we really enjoyed it, but in order to be competitive next year, we need this rear wing, we need this restrictor, we need this, this, and this. And the French were like, no, 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 no. You must make your car better. And <laughs> Wow, there's a, there's a unique concept, right? You're and and so what happens now? All right, let's say you guys are like, all right, we want to go sports car racing, and you build a five million dollar, you know, uh, GT3 car that is awesome, awesome, it's unbelievable, and you show up to the race car, to the racetrack. I build a two million dollar car. It's not as good. It's not as fast. Okay, what's going to happen in today's rules? If you and I race, you go out, you were in the first race and you smoke everybody. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to slow you down or speed me up. Right. right. That's what BOP does. Yeah. And, and to me, it's the stupidest thing in the world because rather than things being determined in the shop or on the racetrack or by the better driver or engineers, it's being, you know, decided by a bunch of guys that probably didn't race themselves. You know, a bunch of bunch of bunch of suits, and uh, so to me, that's you know, I I, I hate it. I, I I don't like it at all. And and in my mind, you can within two races probably get the cars to where they're pretty close, right? You get them pretty close, and then there's going to be a track that's going to favor the Porsche, that's going to favor the Ferrari, that's going to favor the Corvette or what, whatever market is. But I think the twiddling and looking at data and all that kind of stuff, I, I, I don't like it at all. You know, just like I said, I don't like I, 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 paddle shifting is cool, but get rid of get rid of ABS. And, and I think we right. would get to see drivers drive again. Yeah, that's a real uh... I'm all for the technology, especially when it comes in this thing, sort of like, you know, paddle shifters, because actually the paddle shifting makes the transmissions 
and all yeah. that a lot, a lot more reliable. You yeah. Know, and, and all that. Um, but it, it does, it, technology can also work against you. Uh, I, I like it in the safety aspect, but once you get the cars, I mean, I, I, there's a certain point where the racing becomes more engineering based and driver based. Yeah. And I yeah. just, I, and that's all forms of motorsport. I don't care what it is. And I think you have to really walk that fine, fine line because I, I personally, as a fan, like I'm not, I, I, I go to see drivers. I don't go see engineering. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is. Well, it, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, you mentioned paddle shifting, paddle shifting is fun. And yeah, guys don't miss gears. It's easier on the, the, the transmission. But back in the day when you add an H pattern, and you had to heel toe, that was a skill set. That was a skill sure. set. I might be better than you, or you might be better than me, and that's going to allow you to out, over, outbreak me. Right. So, uh, so the the individual athletic skill has been diminished, and uh, and and then the cars are way more stout. You know, back in the day, you didn't see guys touch much. Right. You know, a whole lot of you know stupid saying. You know, rubbing is racing. You know. <laughs> And, uh, it, it is, you know, I mean, back then racing was cleaner. There weren't, there weren't as, you know, the horrific wrecks as often as you see now. Well, one of the problems is that you get every, everybody so close, then all of a sudden somebody sees a hole, they're going to lean on you and they're going to yeah. get into you to get by. And you have ABS. It's funny because, right. you know, it was when I, we've all probably seen the movie Santa and a great movie. But where when he's talking with Jackie Stewart, Jackie Stewart's giving him a, a hard time. He's you, know, you see a gap and uh, and uh, and you don't go for it, then you're no longer a racing car driver. And uh, and that's well, I mean, you see a gap all the time. And and so just you know, if there's a gap, you know, uh, the sometimes that gap's going to close. And so mm -hmm. I, I think guys are less respectful of the mm -hmm. safety or the positioning and also i mean i love sim racing i've got a great sim and all that kind of stuff but i also think that kind of invites that type of behavior because guys are training on their sim and oh i'm going to go for a gap well a simulator and a, and a real thing are, are are different and uh it, it's funny you know i got wrecked out of long beach while leading in 2015 and i made the comment you know uh and it was maybe it's a little cheeky I can be a little bit cheeky, but I was like, you know, all these guys think they're racing on a sim. And I got, I <laughs> thought it was pretty cool. I got a hate mail from some sim guys. You know, why are you throwing down on the sim? <laughs> and it, you don't have a reset. And if you wreck an eye racing, it didn't cost the team $70,000, you know? So it is, uh, it is, uh, I don't know. My well, things are, well, you, you crash in eye racing. You don't have to, you know, it, the the machine to this point is not realistic enough to where it starts throwing parts up off of it. You know, people oh, yeah. don't have to repair it. Yeah. You know, so like you said, I mean, and there's no no aspect of human uh, of a human being getting physically hurt in the deal. It, and those are, yeah. It, it's funny. I went, you know, I went to Petit Le Mans this year and just, you know, walking down pit lane, and I swear there are guys there that are racing in the highest levels that aren't shaped. You know, I mean, the kids, excuse me, are just are so young now. <clears throat> so, right. The sports changed. And, uh, 
you know, but you don't see any of these guys, young guys coming up that didn't have a parent, you know, that had a ton of money, you right. know, uh, I, or maybe they haven't, I just haven't noticed. So, um, we've, we've actually had your teammate on our podcast from 2001, 24 hours a day, Tony, Chris Neifel, um, one of your teammates. And, um, so, so talk a little bit about, well, first off, Chris, um, you know, kind of like you, he has no desire to really go back to Indianapolis. That's one thing he always kind of talks about. Last time he was there, I think, was when he ran in like 80, 87 or 88. Um, so it's kind of funny. But um, he, so talk a little bit about 2001. Obviously, you guys win. Um, and the other car on your team was, you know, tons of attention. Dale Earnhardt Sr., Dale Earnhardt Jr. Um, just talk a little bit about that weekend and, you know, getting the race against those guys. Yeah, that was my that was my first uh, race for GM <clears throat> in the Corvette, and uh, and and it was really neat because you know Big E, as big a star as he was, was really a student, you know, and it, uh, I don't know why, but for some reason or another, in all the practice sessions, he and I would be out there at the same time, and he's the only guy that ever called me Rusty. I used to be, you know, have have bright red hair, and. Oh. He's like, hey, hey, Rusty, you know, you seem to anything I can do better. You'd make sure you tell me and all that kind of stuff. You really wanted to get better. And one of the coolest things is that, you know, the, the physics and road racing are that if you come out of a corner faster than me, by the end of the straightaway, you'll be faster than me. For some reason or another, Little E and Big E, when they go out on the oval one through two, they'd come out of two faster. Okay, same in oval three and four. <clears throat> and we're like, this doesn't make sense. In the race, you know, I come up and we're going to lap, you know, uh, the Earnhardt's, the three car. And it's, it's, it's Dale in the car. And rather than go by him, I'm like, I'm going to follow him for a lap or two. And so he can show me what he's doing on the oval so I can go faster. And I got to tell you, the first time we came to the bus stop, <clears throat> and this was back when the bus stop was really cool. They kind of messed it up. Uh, I liked it better. The old way is a little bit more dangerous, but faster. And uh, But I come out in oval three, and I'm like two, three feet off the bumper of Big E. And we're coming through turn four. And, I mean, we never saw the ship light, you know, in top gear. You just weren't, you weren't geared, you know, uh, for that light to come on. And as we come towards start finish, I got my ship light just blazing. I mean, we are hauling. And I'm like, man, I can't believe I am drafting at don't at Daytona with Big E. And uh and it was I mean not many people can say that. And uh so it was it was very cool. And uh yeah we we were we were lucky we we you know that was a challenging race ton of rain and uh but uh yeah to to win the thing you know overall was pretty spectacular and uh and it was actually you know it's interesting that you said chris chris was really the result or his choices led to my biggest break i was originally with gm only going to do daytona sebring le mans and petit le mans and then that year after daytona they offered chris the job as chief steward for cart and so he jumped at that and that opened up the door, you know, for me to do the full, full season with, uh, with Corvette and the, the rest is history. So what, what were the Earnhardt's doing? The pickup speed, where were they finding that speed? Well, you know, they, they were, you know, 
we we would finish oval uh, one out by the wall, but we wouldn't rush to get back to the bottom. And you might not even get back to the bottom. They would rush, get the left side tires right on the bottom, make make the corner shorter. But also mm. there were some different bumps down there, and so uh, so yeah, that was that was the trick. So one so, thing, sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. No, we're good. Um, so one thing with, you know, endurance racing is, you know, you're, you're having to switch during a race. And, you know, in, in 2001 is a perfect example of this. Chris is w one of the tallest racing, professional racing drivers of all time. Like, what kind of adjustments, if any, really had, had to be made when you're transitioning um, from a six-foot, six-guy <laughs> to, um, you, you're what, like six-foot? No, I'm like 5'10", five, 5'11". And so, yeah, <clears throat> you have a, you make a, a foam insert. So actually the rotation was Ron, myself, Chris, then Frank Freon. And so when Ron would get out, I'd throw my insert in and, uh, <clears throat> which would get me closer to the steering wheel so I could get to full throttle and all that kind of stuff. But when you're, when you're the third guy or the fourth guy, you're the low priority. You know, and uh, and so my comfort at that race was not what I would have liked it to have been. But you're so happy to be there. And that was, you know, the C5R, you know, especially, you know, and again, no traction control, you know, no ABS, no, you know, I mean, old fashioned. And uh, but that thing was a rocket ship. That thing had, was so fun to drive. And uh, but here's you like this. This is a funny story. <clears throat> so. We're doing a press conference at Daytona, and the Earnhardts are there. Now, I just uh, come from racing the prototypes. I'd been racing for Panos. And I got into the Corvette, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, this car is awful. It doesn't stop. It doesn't <laughs> turn. It doesn't accelerate. And because it was so much more mass without the arrow and all that kind of stuff. Well, we're doing this press conference, and Big E's like, I got to tell you guys, it's Corvette's most amazing car I ever drove before. It stops when I want it to stop. It turns when I want it to turn. It goes when I want to go. And all I can think is, oh, my God, a NASCAR must be miserable to drive. And, uh, but uh, but it, it was funny because the Big E, he loved it. I mean, at 4.30 in the morning in the rain, he's in the he was in the pits. And he's just paying attention, joking with the guys. And he had, you know, he became very good friends with Andy Pilgrim. And he was, he, in his mind, that was likely to be his last year doing Cup. And he wanted to join Corvette Racing and go to race at Le Mans. So, you know, uh, Racing lost one heck of a great guy uh, when, when that accident happened a couple weeks later. I think that's a really interesting. Uh, again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. A uh, guy widely considered the best ever, at, what, at least in his genre. Uh, yeah. He always wanted to learn. Like, he had no ego. Uh, and it was uh, it was all about getting better. And I think that, I think that uh, is a real look into why he was so successful at what he did to begin with. Oh, yeah. Well, and he picked it up. I mean... By uh, that was a really wet year, and uh, initially in the wet he was slow. By the end, his his times in the wet were were matching us. So it was, uh, yeah, no, no, he was a pretty special guy. 
And but again, just like like all the greats, you know, they aren't afraid to challenge themselves and learn. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So you know, talk a little bit about NASCAR. You you got to experience NASCAR a little bit. You did just one race. Yeah. Yeah. 2013 with J, um, Junior Motorsports, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what was that, you know, I mean, how tough was it or how similar is an NASCAR really from all those years of doing sports car racing? How hard was it for you to adapt to drive the NASCAR? Well, the braking, because you can get wheel hop, uh, yeah. knowing, knowing those tires, you know, I think uh, Almendinger won that year and uh, we had we had qualified 12th. I think. And, uh, and then I can't, I can't remember who the, the regular guy was. We, so we out-qualified the regular guy. Um, but then I, I learned something really interesting in that if you are not a regular guy there, you are totally disposable. So I worked my way up to fifth and then uh, came through uh, turn six, going into turn seven. I've got Kyle Larson behind me. And you don't pass anybody going into turn seven. Well, he tries to pass me in turn seven and turns me sideways. I go bouncing off the tires on driver's right, you know, hit the front, hit the back. And now in a sports car, that's day over. Uh -uh, not in one of these cars. So I like, I get first gear, I get going again, steering wheel is straight, no real wrinkles in the fenders. And they're like, keep going. And lap times are still there. So that, that dropped me down to like 13th. Well, I get myself up back up to fifth, okay, and and now we're getting close to the end of the race and going into turn five, okay. Sam Hornish turns me backwards. I'm like, Jesus Christ! And then I then it dawns on me, this is go kart racing. This is literally like you and your best buddies go to the rental kart place. You don't care if you damage them. And you wreck each other and you laugh and flip each other off and, and have fun. And so like literally the, that was one of those deals where the last five laps, you know, everybody, you know, that's two laps caution, two laps caution. Well, we, we came in and we, we got fallen all the way back to 29th and uh, they came in, they gave me some sticker tires. And in the last two laps went from 29th back up to 12th, which was two things. Some of the most fun I ever had. And also the most flipped off I've ever been in my entire life, you know. So uh, it was uh, it was an experience. I thought, you know, I, I would have liked to have done it. it went, and here's the funny thing. At the end of the race, okay, I'm like, what the heck was going on? Well, they had put a yellow bumper on me. You know, I, I didn't know that for your first race, you have to race as a rookie or whatever. So if you're, you know, if I'm racing against these guys, they know I'm not there for the points. I'm just there for one race. No wonder they're turning me backwards. Sure. Yeah. But it was, it was pretty fun to drive. The engines in those cars are great. And for like two or three laps, the tires are really good. <laughs> so of all the cars you've ever driven, if you had to pick one car that you could go back and drive, and I'm, I'm guessing it's not going to be the Indy car, <laughs> but if any car you could go back and drive, would, would there be one car that you, well, think I you have the most fun driving? The, the 95 Reynard, I would love to run at a place like Road America or, you know, get to race it on a road course. I think that would, that would be pretty awesome. But the probably the coolest car I, I probably ever drove was the Cadillac, the ATS VR. That, that thing was sick with its technology. Very, very precise car. Very pre precise car. 
Um, the Formula Atlanta car, I got to drive a lot of stuff. The Panos was very cool. Um, so uh, it'd be very difficult to, to pick just one. Which one do I have the best memories of? Probably the Corvette. You know, getting to to race at Le Mans with that car and win at Le Mans, and then you know, shoot, you know, the luck that we had at Sebring. I got I, I got to win Sebring at times, you know, and a lot of that was you know uh, the Corvette. So so yeah, no, pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. Hard to pick just one. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, everything you've driven, that it'd be hard to pick one. So as we're kind of winding down, I, I don't ask this of every everybody, so you ought to feel special about this one. That uh, best racing story you can share with us. What's your what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there it is right there. <laughs> best, best racing story you don't mind sharing in a, in a crowd. I'll, 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 I'll share. All right, so this is pretty cool. So in 2000, um, this, this was actually really funny. All right, there are two stories here. So in 2000, Don hired Mario Andretti, okay, to race at Le Mans. Uh, with uh, and he was teamed with Ian Magnuson and uh, David Brabham. Now to have Mario's everybody's hero. You know it, it is when I've been lucky. I've gotten to meet a lot of my heroes. Most of them, you're like uh, you pick the right hero. Uh, one or two were jerks. I won't name who they were, but uh, but Mario's the real deal. He's the coolest guy in the world. And when you go out to dinner with Mario and he's got a glass of wine and he starts sharing stories of stuff from the '60s and '70s, that's that's rocking chair equity. But uh, but that year at Le Mans, my team was a little Japanese guy named Hiroki Kato. Great guy. He and I became very good friends. And Hiroki weighed all of about 125 pounds. And so, you know, and Hiroki had his own physical therapist from Japan show up. And, you know, the, you know, at the end of the first day, you know, practice, he's putting tape on his shoulders, the therapist. And I'm like, hey, Hiroki-san, what's that? He's like, oh, Japanese magic tape. Make your body feel way better. And so he gave me a little bit of Japanese magic tape. And then uh, you're sharing this little room that's at the, at the racetrack. It's got a shower and two beds in it. And so, you know, it, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like a 125 pound, tiny little Japanese guy in tidy whities, but it's pretty. It's, Not recently. No, no. It, I, I tell you what, it burns the eyeballs. It burns them. But, <laughs> So uh, you're, it's, it was funny. And so anyway, we get to like 10 o'clock in the morning and I am having a great Le Mans. I'm, I am enjoying it so much. I'm having great stints. We're running fifth. And I get back to our little room and Hiroki's there. And I swear to God, he looks like a mummy. He's got, ma you know, Japanese magic tape all over his body. And he's moaning. He's like, oh, Johnny-san, I don't think I get back in car. <laughs> and I was like... But I got this visual of like, you know, Roki Kato-san and his tidy whities with tape all over him. Oh, Lord, I wish I could get that vision out of my head. But uh, but uh, that was that was, pretty, that, that was pretty. You know, I, there, uh, I'll finish with a great one. And that was uh, my last win at Le Mans was 2009. It was myself, uh, Jan Magnuson and Antonio Garcia. You know, Le Mans back in the day, uh, two drivers would do it. And it was doable, but back in the day, the cars weren't as, as athletic. The G-forces were a percentage of what they are now. Well, Yan got food poisoning. And, and <coughs> from 9.30, 10 o'clock, you know, Saturday night, 
he's out. So it was Antonio Garcia and I doing doubles and triples all the way to the end of the race. And, and we wound up winning. So, so that one, I would say if, if there's a, a memory, a racing memory, that's, that's probably my most favorite, that that's likely it. I mean, that's just, I mean, man, that's just gotten it out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. pure, pure one, two. Yeah. Did you, yeah. Did you get any sleep during 24 hour races like that? No, you know, it's on and off, you know, you're, you're, you, you might sleep, you know, 60%, but you never go to a deep sleep because you're, you're anticipating you're going to get that knock on the door saying, all right, you're up in half an hour, you know? And, uh, but you know, one of the things that, you know, is nice when, especially when you're racing with a big team, you know, you, you get out of the car, you know, you get a quick shower, bite to eat massage if you need one. And, uh, but they take your driver's suit, they wash it. And you always have a couple suits there because if you can get back into a clean, fresh driver's suit, it's amazing just how much better that makes you feel rather than just being, you know, nasty, wet and sweaty the whole time. Yeah. I always think about that when guys win the 500 and they get doused with the milk and then they do interviews till eight, nine o'clock at night in those uniforms. I, I, I always thought, why don't go change that? Go put that somewhere where somebody don't steal it. Yeah. And then go, go back out with a fresh uniform, fresh uh, fireproof, and, and you know, you'd feel so much better. It, you would, but I tell you what, if I, if I had the opportunity to have smelt like sour milk, for, <laughs> I, 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 I had to wear that suit as long as they made me. So, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, you know what I mean? It, it is uh, – that that place is special and you know i'm lucky i'm you know uh friends with a bunch of guys that have won it uh and uh you know some of those guys you know uh, i'm i'm a big fan of helio uh you know he and i are buds will power you know of course chevy guy you know great guy uh dario franchitti you know i mean i, I it, when i look at indycar i'm like man imagine what dario could have done if he hadn't gotten hurt and uh right. so you know, I mean, they're they're the 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 five hundred. Trust me, even though it wasn't my place, it is still one of the most special places in the world. Oh, absolutely. You know, one other thing, in uh, you know, and I've asked this, I have asked this of a, of a lot of guests because obviously you have immense talent. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. You've been fast since that since that day you were sitting on your dad's lap. What uh, and I realize that it takes money to get where you're going, but honest to God, at the end of the day, what what do you think sep separated you from maybe other guys who that who had similar talent? Well, luck, getting the right break, um, getting an opportunity, and making the most of it. Uh, uh, you biggest know, one of my biggest breaks came uh, when I was working as an instructor at the Bondurant School. In that uh, this, this was down in Phoenix, and I'd been doing some driving in the GTO car, and NPTI showed up to test at one of the tracks at Firebird, and I just went over there to shake hands, kiss babies, you know, get my name on the roster, and one of the engineers was like, hey, Brabham's got to leave early tomorrow. You want to finish his work? And I thought he was joking. I was like, you're kidding, right? He's like, no, we've been wanting to put you in the car for a while. And so, you know, and Lion Dyke was there and Bob Earl was there, but I got to, there was, you could see the entire racetrack. So I could see where Jeff was changing gears, braking, all that kind of stuff, visualize it. 
And then uh, when I got into the car, went quick, you know, didn't go as quick as, as Jeff did, but quick enough that they're like, Oh, we want you. And uh, so, you know, and that was, that was, had I not done that, I might still be working as an instructor at Bondurant, you know? So it's when you get that opportunity and most guys do get at some point a, an opportunity. And if you can make that opportunity and take it and be special, well, then uh, I, I think then you can make it happen. Is it a case of being being prepared to be able to say yes? Yeah, yeah. Well, and visualizing it. I mean, I always visualize, you know, I never visualize failure. I always visualize this is going to happen. And, uh, and although I would have preferred it happen with the getting to do the European route, it didn't. And, you know, we made the most, most of, uh, of what came our way. Sure. Well, Johnny, I don't have anything else. You have anything else, Scott? I don't. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for, for, uh, sharing your stories with us. And, uh, and I'm sure Aaron will tell you this, uh, you are welcome on here anytime. So if you ever get anything going on and we'd love to have you back. Well, cool. Well, thank you. And, uh, yeah, no, I should have some stuff going for 2023. Nothing I can talk about it yet, but, uh, like I've been saying for the last five years, I'm not retired yet. So, uh, so we'll get back out there. Absolutely. Johnny Caples told me one time, he goes, I never retired. I just never put my helmet back on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm putting mine back on. So. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> All, All right. Thanks. All right. Yep. Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate it.